The rest of you, if you'll grab your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 32, that's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have your Bible, just follow along. It'll be on the screens here. Psalm 32, a masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one whose trust is in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Some commentators argue over the place where Psalm 32 occupies in Scripture. They argue and they wonder about what are the situations, what are the instances that are happening in David's life at that time. But what we do know and what we can be certain of is the fact that Psalm 32 occupies a place which six psalms in the Psalter occupy, and that is a place of penitence, where David is coming before the Lord with sorrow for sin and is confessing his sin to the Lord, and in that confession, he's also finding forgiveness. Um, some, of, some commentators would postulate that Psalm 51 is immediately preceding Psalm 32 in order of writing, where David says, has his sin with Bathsheba, and he confesses that to the Lord, and he brings it to the Lord after Nathan the prophet confronts him, and at that point, he writes Psalm 32, because there's this line in Psalm 51 that says, therefore, I will instruct sinners uh, and lead them toward you in, in, uh, in confession, um, but, and so this is a psalm that instructs us in the means of confession. Um, either way, this is a psalm of penitence. And as we look at it, we find for our lives a model laid out of what does repentance look like for us. The Puritans wrote that the Psalter was a medicine cabinet for the soul. That it was a well-stocked medicine cabinet. And some of you college students, you might think medicine cabinet, and what that means for you is you have like six band-aids that are left, and you have maybe a jar or a bottle of ibuprofen or something like that for headaches, and that's about the medicine cabinet. But some of you, um, Dr. Eric's medicine cabinet is probably much more stocked than that. There's more than just a band-aid, and there's more than just a single ibuprofen, but there's a little bit of everything for everything that ails you. And what we see in Psalms is that it's a well-stocked medicine cabinet. And that for every ailment of our soul, there's a place in the Psalms that we can go to to find soothing, that we can find comfort, that we can maybe find something to expel the ailment that we're feeling. So King David, he was a man after God's own heart. He was the king of Israel. He loved the Lord. Scripture itself says that David was a man after God's own heart. But yet, for all of us, we know that King David had one glaring sin, 
one thing that really stood out, a huge mark against his character, and that was his sin with Bathsheba, where at the time when kings should be going to war, David chooses to stay home. He is on the roof of his house, and he looks out, and he sees a woman, and he says, I desire that woman. And he committed adultery with her. As a result of the adultery, she is pregnant. He calls her husband home from battle and tries to cover his sin in that way. Uriah won't go home to his wife because he says, how am I going to do that when the rest of the army is fighting? And so David comes up with the only good plan left. He says, fine, I'll kill Uriah. Therefore, my sin will never be found out. So he sends Uriah back to the battle with his own death sentence in hand. And later on, the news comes, your husband is dead. And David says, oh, that's really sad. Come and be my wife to Bathsheba. And she comes, and she becomes his wife, and the child is born. But the thing displeases the Lord. The Lord is not pleased. David may have gotten away with sin. He may have gotten away with murder. But he doesn't get away without the Lord knowing what's going on in his heart. And in that vein, we come to a place like Psalm 32. I'm going to have just three simple points for you this morning. If you're the note-taking type, you can get them right up front, but then don't zone out, don't check out, but listen to what's going on. The first point is this, the description of blessing. The second, the antithesis of blessing. And then the third is repentance, the avenue to blessing. The description of blessing, it comes from the first two verses. It opens in a very familiar way. It says, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, blessed is the man. We would look at Psalm, Matthew, I mean, Matthew chapter 5, and we see in Matthew chapter 5 the same kind of thing being laid out. A blessing from God on a person. And Charles Spurgeon writes of these first verses that they are superlative blessing. That means they are the highest praise, the highest achievement that blessing can have. So that's what he calls them. He calls them superlative blessedness, that their highest element is the happiness of heaven. So that would ask us just who is the one that receives these blessings, and it lays it out for us very clearly. Who is the one who is made happy? Who is the one who is made blessed? Because the word blessed, by definition, in Webster's Dictionary means divinely or supremely favored, And also it means blissfully happy and contented. And I think that's probably something that all of us would strive for. We desire a heart-level happiness that is just blissful. That says we want the happiness of heaven. We desire that. So what is the means or who is the person that it is that receives these things? The Hebrew word esher that the ESV translates here as blessed can also be translated as happy. It's an interjection that catches our attention and that needs to make us dwell on what's going on. What, who is this happy person? In a few months, students will show up to your homes. They'll show up to church. They'll show up somewhere with a treasure in their possession. And this treasure is their yearbook. And they'll look through that yearbook and they'll find every single picture of themselves and they'll comment on, is this a good picture? Is that a bad picture? I didn't even know they took that picture. And then inevitably after they've found all of their pictures and all of their friends' pictures and they've dwelt on just the glory that is happening before them in this yearbook, they're going to turn the page and they're going to get to the section that has all the superlatives, right? Some of you right now are thinking, oh yes, most athletic in high school, that was me. Prom queen, that was me. Best smile, that was me. And so your students will be doing the same thing. 
They'll be looking through these superlatives and saying, what does this say about me and about my friends? And do I really think that person is the most likely to succeed? And does that person really have the best smile? And so they'll sit in front of the mirror and they'll say, yeah, it's better than mine. So, um, but these superlatives are the highest praise that their high school can give them. You are the most likely to succeed. You are the most likely to brighten someone's day. You have the best smile. It's going to be the who's who of high school, the who's who of middle school, the who's who of the junior high. And Psalm 32 opens with the who's who of God's economy, who is blessed and who is happy in God's economy. And it gives us four pictures of this. The first picture is the first one, being forgiven, blessed or happy is the man is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The first blessing that David talks about is not the blessing of the one who's perfect in every way, because then we would never experience that blessedness. But the first blessing that David talks about is the one who is forgiven. We would be in error to just read this as simply a God saying, I forgive you, and moving on. Because this facilitates us, or it necessitates us looking much deeper at this text, the cost of forgiveness necessitates a greater emphasis. Transgression means to break a law. And in scripture, transgression means to break God's holy law. We, by crossing over, by breaking God's law, we have made ourselves to be transgressors because we have done what is transgression. We have proven through our actions who we are. But this transgressor in scripture, he's not labeled simply by transgressor. He's rather labeled as being forgiven. The Hebrew word for forgiven translates as taken off or taken away. I think in one of the greatest um, books in Christendom history is the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And And John Bunyan writes this book and he tells of a dream he has of one man's journey from the land of destruction to the city of righteousness. And this man's name is Christian. It's a really original title uh, for this man. And his name is Christian. And the book opens as Christian is walking through the fields near his home. And it says he has a book in his hand and a great weight on his back. And as he walks around, around his house, it says that he is filled with turmoil And he's groaning because of what's going on. This book has shown him something, and it has made him notice for the first time that there's a great weight on his back. And he has realized from reading this book that nothing that he can do can take the weight off his back. And so he is instructed by a man whose name is Evangelist, who says, hey, do you see way over there there's a gate? And Christian says, I don't see the gate. And Evangelist says to him, well, do you see a great light over there? And he says, I think I see it. He says, then go toward that light. And there you will find that this burden can be taken off of your back. So Christian journeys that way, and it's not an easy journey, it's not an easy path. But as he journeys that way, he finally comes to a place, and that place is the cross of Christ. And as he comes to the cross of Christ, he kneels down at it. And the picture that John Bunyan writes is that the cords that were binding this heavy burden to his back, that they snap, and the burden rolls away. And he is able to get up and to say, I've been freed from the load. I've been freed from the burden for the first time in his life. And the first time since he became aware of that great burden that he was carrying. That's the picture that David is showing. Blessed and happy 
is the one whose transgression is taken away, who that great weight is gone. The second picture is a picture of covering. It says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. The first instance in Scripture of something being covered shows up in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we have just finished Genesis chapter 2, where um, Adam and Eve are perfect and they're holy. And it says at the end of chapter 2 that Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. And then in Genesis chapter 3, it begins with the serpent, and the serpent deceives Eve. And as Eve listens to the voice of the servant, she commits sin against God. She does exactly what God has forbidden her and Adam to do. She shares this fruit with Adam. And it says, what is the result of that? The result of that is that they know now that they are naked and they are filled with shame. And so we see God come into the garden and he says to Adam and Eve, where are you? And they're hiding from the Lord because they realize that they were naked, even though they have now made for themselves clothing out of the fig leaves, but that still was an insufficient covering for the nakedness that they have. And at the end of chapter three in Genesis, what does it say? It says that God kills an animal and he creates for them a covering so that he could cover over their nakedness. God was the one who was able to cover. Sin loves to hide in the darkness. Its power is in shame. Its power is in darkness. But God himself is the only one who, unlike darkness, can truly cover and make sin uh, be covered over. We see in Scripture that God covers people with his wings. We see that God covers his people through the exodus from Egypt with cloud and with fire. He covers them from Pharaoh's coming army. We see the depths of water covering over sin. Listen to Micah 7, 9. It says this. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And listen, you will cast all of our sin into the depths of the sea. It's a covering that is difficult for us to comprehend. My son Calvin loves the sea. Um, he watches that show Octonauts all the time, and he's continuously asking me this question, Dad, what's your favorite animal that lives in the midnight zone? Now, truth be told, I didn't really know there was a midnight zone until Calvin told me about the midnight zone, and so I just choose colossal squid all the time because it lives there apparently, and it's a satisfactory answer for Calvin, but when we, you begin to think about the depths of the sea, where darkness is what reigns supreme, where there's no light at all, where the pressure is so intense, we don't even begin to plumb the depths of the sea and comprehend what's going on down there. That's what God is saying about the covering that he creates for sin. It's no longer anything at all. The third picture that we see is of iniquity uncounted, blessed or happy, is the one who is iniquity against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The definition of iniquity is to turn aside from something from its intention, to bend or to pervert. We are people that are quick to turn after our own ways. We pervert gifts that have been given to us by God. We misuse liberty. We take what God has created and we use it for ourselves instead of for what God intended. Adam and Eve took the gift that God had given them, the Garden of Eden, this beautiful life that he had given them, and they said, but this serpent says we could be like God. We could know good and evil. We want to know those things. We want to understand, and in that, iniquity and sin happens. 
Nearly every time that iniquity occurs in the Old Testament, very close to it, shows up our need for forgiveness or a description of atonement. So scripture is making the point that our very nature, one that is iniquitous from birth, um, has a need for that nature to no longer be counted. And what we see in scripture is the seed of justification through the Old Testament where it would say that God is the one who makes sinners righteous. Because when a Hebrew family would come to the temple to atone for their transgression, what would they do? They'd bring an animal as a sacrifice. And as they brought that animal, they would lay their hands on it. They would confess their sins and place this on the animal. And then what would they do? They would kill the animal. And does killing the animal destroy their own sin? No, but through faith in Christ and what God had passed on to them, they were saying, this animal is bearing my transgression. It's bearing my iniquity. And because of this animal has died, therefore, this sin has been atoned for. Alistair Begg says the same thing um, in his sermon on Psalm 32. He went on to show how David was one who was in need, too, of a sacrificial covering for his sin, how the cow or the sheep or the goat or the dove, that in and of itself could not atone for sin. But Christ, in faith, David laying his hand on this animal and saying, this animal is going to die, is going to give its life in my stead, that his transgression, that his iniquity would be covered. Psalm 130, verses 4 and 5 says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The iniquity, the turning away, the perversion of what is good and right must be atoned for. That debt needs to be reconciled. And so the price for that atonement must be paid. Psalm 65 says this, When iniquities prevail against me, you, Lord, atone for my transgression. Isaiah 53 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the turning away, the perversion of what is good and right of all of us. Isaiah 53 gives us a picture of a lamb, which is the picture of a sacrifice for our sin. But initially it puts us in the place of the sheep, right? Verse three, 6 says, We're like sheep, we have gone astray. And then later on, it flips that paradigm and it shows us Christ Jesus who became for us a lamb, the one who took the penalty that we deserve. Then the fourth picture of blessedness is this. It's a spirit without deceit. This is a confusing picture because we've previously been looking at things that are obviously blessings from the Lord. Sin covered, iniquity atoned for, um, and transgression forgiven. But then we get to this one, and it sounds almost as though it's something that we are doing. The spirit without deceit. This, has the, this really does have the possibility of sounding like something that we do. But this is actually something that only God's spirit can truly create within us. If we were to link this to Psalm 51, if we were to link Psalm 32 and 51 together in this vein of penitential psalms, what would we hear David say except this? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's not saying that it's a bootstraps kind of effort or something that he does, but he's asking the Lord to create, to sow a seed of a clean heart in him, to renew a right spirit. 
within him, a spirit that in, in which there is no deceit. God is a God who is about the work of renewal. We see that all over scripture, that God is a God who renews, that God is a God who recreates, God is a God who redeems. And what God does for our spirits is he recreates it within us a right spirit. If we, when we look at the Beatitudes, those other blessings in scripture in Matthew chapter five, we see um, Matthew write this, blessed are the pure in heart for they'll see God. This is the kind of spirit that is a gift from God that we so crave. And we want to see God clearly. We want to see his glory. We want to see his beauty. We want to see his perfection in the place of our own unrighteousness. And that is something that God works within us. What a happy person that this person in Psalm 32, chapter one, verses 1 and 2 is, right? He's forgiven. His sin is covered. His iniquity is atoned for. The Lord creates in him a clean heart. When David experiences forgiveness, this is what he gets to write. But before that, or after this fact, we see verses 3 and verses 4, and these are the complete opposite. So when we, op- we open with a bold expression of happiness, and then we move right away into a very sad and a very dismal-looking place, right? When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That sounds pretty bad. That really sounds pretty bad to me. So we have these vignettes of the ugliness of sin. The first one, wasting away. The physical effects of David's sin is such that he likens it to his bones wasting away. Now, I don't know enough about osteoporosis to know if David is describing osteoporosis in this, in this text. But what I do understand from this text is that there is a very real and a very physical feeling that David is experiencing in his body when there's unconfessed sin in his heart. If you'll turn over just a couple pages to Psalm 38 with me, I want to read just a couple of pages right there. Smooth, man. Um, This is what Psalm 38 says. There is no soundness in my flesh because of my indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my folly. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. For all day long I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. And this sounds very much like wasting away. He says his bones are weak. His body aches. It's definitely a different picture than the one of happiness that we see in verses 1 and 2. The weight of his sin pressing down on him is too much for him to hold. Eventually, there's going to come that straw that breaks the camel's back for David. I'm sure all of you have heard the the old tale about the boy in Holland who's walking along by the dam. It's a country that's surrounded by water, and they rely on these big dams to keep their country from flooding. And what happens? He walks by, and he sees a hole, right? So he sticks his finger in the hole. He says, oh, that'll fix it for a while. And then as some tales go, right, another leak later on pops up and he tries to stick another finger in. And they keep coming, and eventually the little boy is going to run out of fingers, right? And the weight of the water, the weight of what this dam is holding back is going to come crushing in. 
And what's it going to do with this young boy that's trying to hold it back with his fingers? It's going to take him out too. I think that this is the picture that David is painting of his bones wasting away. I can't stand under the weight of my own sin. It's too much for me to bear. And then he says, I'm groaning all day long. Like the way that the King James translates the last half of this verse 3, because it says through my roaring all day long. It just sounds angry. It sounds mad. It sounds volatile, right? We, we hear the groan often in our house when sin becomes uncovered that was trying to be covered. Happened this morning, in fact, as I'm getting ready to go to church, Calvin walks into the room with all of the great Lego trucks that we had built yesterday. And Micah, his first response is, Calvin, that's my truck. And Calvin says, but Micah, there's another one. It's really crappy. Back in your room, you can go get that one. And so Micah doesn't like that truck. And so he says, Dad, I just want my truck. And so I'm going to do what a dad does. Calvin, it's true. That's Micah's truck. Why don't we give it back to him? And do you want to know what Calvin's response to that is? And that just is what Calvin does oftentimes when he gets, when the, he knows he's in sin. Calvin knew that the truck belonged to Micah. He knew that he should give it to Micah. But what does he want? He still wants his own way. He still wants the, the thing that he desires. He still desired Micah's truck, took it for himself and said, this is mine now. And when the iniquity that Calvin is experiencing, that Calvin is participating in willfully, is uncovered, Calvin's response to this is the groan. Ah. And so we dealt with the groan this morning. And we said, Calvin, what's happening is that the sin in your heart is that you want everything. You want Micah's possessions for yourself. So let's deal with that sin And then what's that going to do? But that's going to open back up the pathway in for you to have a blessed relationship with both your mom and your dad and with your brother. One that's no longer marred by your selfishness and your desire to take things for yourself. It was a perfect illustration of what the groaning in my heart, my heart doesn't groan over Legos any longer. But man, there's plenty of times when I feel that the sin of my heart is being uncovered and it, it leads me to groaning. It leads me to this expression of, I don't really understand it, but maybe if I just groan about it, maybe if I just complain about it, I'm going to feel a little bit better over my own sin. The third picture that we see, or the third little vignette, um, is that we see that God's hand, sorry, I skipped a section here. It's interesting to note that in verse 3, we see kind of a self-destructive end right here. It says, um, let me get back there. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. There seems to be a, I'm going to persist in silence over my sin. I'm not going to confess it. I'm not going to seek forgiveness for my sin. I'm going to persist in this willful sinning. And what happens is my bones are going to waste away. I'm filled with groaning all day long. And if we, when we listened to verse 10 earlier, it says this. God says this to David. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit or a bridle, or it will not stay near to you. And so he gives, David gives for us from God's hand this illustration of a horse or a mule. And as I'm thinking through this and I'm praying through this this week, what comes to mind is everybody's favorite villain, Yosemite Sam, right? And what is Yosemite Sam's line? 
Nobody knows Yosemite Sam's line. Yosemite Sam's line is, when I say whoa, I means whoa, right? And oftentimes, Yosemite Sam's line of saying, what I desire to happen is often accompanied by violence, correct? A two by four, the barrel of his gun, a hammer, a frying pan, something like that, smashes into the head of whatever means of transportation it is of the day, right? The camel, the mule, the donkey, whatever it is that he is riding, he is saying, come on, stop. He's pulling on those reins a little bit, and the donkey always persists in continuing after his own way, and eventually Yosemite Sam is left with the only thing that he's going to do is grab that frying pan and smash it in the head, right, to say, stop where you're going. Stop the self-destruction. Stop the self-destructive actions that you are engaging in. When you keep silent about your sin, that's what's going to happen. The physical feeling of weakness, the feeling of God's hand that we're going to talk about in a moment being heavy upon you, the feeling of internal groaning, and that's from God. That's from God that would say, come to repentance. Don't persist in unrepentance, but instead choose repentance because in repentance there is forgiveness. The heavy hand of God is weighing down upon David too. It didn't come in little manageable bursts, but it says all day long, your hand was heavy upon me. And what that did is it dried up David's strength. Psalm 38 verse 2 says that God's arrows, it says your arrows have sunk deep into me. Why? Because God's angry at me? No, because of my sin. The illness that I hate above every other illness is the flu. And I think the reason that I hate the flu so much is because when you get the flu all over your body, at least for me, you begin to experience the aching sensation of the flu. Your muscles hurt, your bones hurt, your joints hurt. Everything about you begins to ache as this sickness weighs down upon you. And all you desire at that moment is to say, I want to be better. I want to be healed from this flu I want the symptoms to go away, but more than the symptoms to go away, I just want once again to feel like I have life. I want once again to feel like I have energy, that I can get out of bed and go and do something. David says of of his sin, that's the feeling that I have toward my sin. It weighs heavy upon me. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and it dried up his strength. Another illustration from Pilgrim's Progress, as Bunyan is walking Pilgrim along the path to the celestial city, it says that as Pilgrim is walking along the road, he accompanied by two friends, all of a sudden he falls into something called the slew of despair. And here is the conversation that happens after a man named Help comes and pulls him out. Help says this, why did you not look for the steps? Christian said, Fear followed me so hard that I fled the next way and fell in. And then help says, give me thy hand. So he gave him his hand and he drew him out and set him upon sound ground and bid him go his way. Then I stepped, Christian, stepped to him that plucked me out and said, Sir, wherefore, since this place is the way from the city of destruction to the gate, is it that this place is not mended that poor travelers might go there with more security? And he, help, said unto him, This miry slough is such a place as cannot be mended. 
It is the descent whither the scum and filth that attends conviction for sin doth continually run, and therefore it's called the slough of despond. For still, as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there arises in his soul many fears and doubts and discouraging apprehensions, which all of them get together and settle in this place. And that is the reason of the badness of this ground. There's a place of despondency and of weightiness where it feels like you're sinking in quicksand, that you're sinking in mud and cannot get out. God's heavy hand is one that would bode judgment and bode destruction for an unrepentant and silent sinner. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. But then Psalm, does, Psalm 32 doesn't leave us in despair because what it does is it closes with a couple of simple verses about how in the world do sinners receive blessing and joy from the Lord? And it opens this way. I acknowledged my sin to you and my transgression, or I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So then what can lead us out of the sorrow? What can lead us out of despair? What can lead us out from underneath the heavy hand of God's judgment and it's this, repentance. Repentance is an action. Repentance is an action that proceeds out of a heart that has been pricked by the deceitfulness and the vileness and the consequence of sin. And when it is sincere, it motivates change in the heart. When the natural proclivity of our heart is the way that Scripture shows us it is, the Garden of Eden, the running and hiding, Genesis 6 when God says of the people in Noah's day, every thought of their heart was evil continually, then we see that repentance is not our norm. We, don't, we see that it's not normal for us. We hesitate. We avoid repentance. Because what does that mean? Acknowledgement of sin means that we're going to uncover the dirtiness of sin that we try to hide. Sin is simply an old archery term that means missing the mark. The children's catechism asks the question, what is sin? And it answers sin, the sin question in this way, that sin is not being or doing what God requires. And acknowledgement, too, is a very simple word. It just means to own up, to accept the responsibility uh, or admit the truth of. For David, maybe this meant I committed adultery and murder. Acknowledgement of sin is the means for us to find happiness, to find blessing from the Lord. The second half of verse 5 says, I didn't cover my iniquity. If we, call, we recall in the very first thing, it says, you cover up my iniquity. And now the psalmist says, because the blessedness of God is that he would cover over my iniquity, therefore in repentance what I'm going to do is I'm going to come before the Lord and I'm going to uncover my iniquity. I'm going to lay that open and I'm going to lay it bare before the Lord. And I'm going to say, this is my iniquity. I am a transgressor and I am in need of forgiveness. I'm going to acknowledge that sin. I'm going to call it what it is. I'm going to be specific about the fact that I am a sinner. And as a sinner, I am in need of God's mercy. And what we see that the Lord does is that he forgives sinners. I want you to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 18. Uh, and we're going to close very quickly. Luke 18 is a, um, is a familiar parable. It's the parable that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. It says that he says it to those 
who trusted in their own righteousness, and it's the parable of two men. So we're going to read Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's two men. Both of them come in prayer to the Lord. Both of them come to the same God with their prayer, but one of them comes in his own righteousness, and one of them comes with the iniquity of his heart uncovered. One of them, his shame is out in the open, and the other is very, very hidden. And Jesus says to those who are righteous in their own eyes, I'll tell you, this man, the one whose sin was uncovered, goes his way, goes to his house, forgiven. The Pharisee assumes for himself the benefit of a forgiven sinner. He said, I'm blessed by God. I got everything going for me. Everything externally appears to be right. But the tax collector comes and says, my life is a wreck. My own sinfulness would disqualify, would disqualify me from even being in God's presence. But what I get to do is I get to come to the Lord in prayer and I get to confess that I'm a sinner. And I get to, at that place, plead for mercy. So I want to ask us this morning, I want to ask myself, I want to ask you, what is the attitude of our heart toward repentance? What does it look like? Do we come to the Lord in repentance and the repentance really looks like our own righteousness heaping up? But we come to the Lord with our sin uncovered and we own it up and we say that I'm not just a generic sinner, but I'm a specific sinner in these areas. And therefore, for these things, I need God's mercy to cover over this. Because one, the one who thinks they're righteous in their own eyes, the weight of their sin eventually will prove to be too much. When we think that we're great at hiding things, God knows our hearts. He sees them. The iniquities of our hearts are laid bare before the Lord. And eventually the weight of our own sin will crush. It will weigh us down to such a point that we cannot stand under it. And that is the place where there is a God who is rich in mercy. When we think about the terms weight and crushing, um, I want to use an illustration this morning that really works well in my heart, and I pray that you, you get this and understand it as well. I grew up in Pensacola, and my dad was in the Navy, and so for me, Pensacola was a Navy town, and so as every summer, one of the highlights of the summer would be that almost every single week when we went to the beach, we would see the Blue Angels practicing over the water. And every single summer when they had like the homecoming show, we would go to that show and we would see the Blue Angels doing incredibly cool things. And as they're flying their planes like 18 inches apart, I just sat there as a little kid and I said, wow, this is astonishing and incredible. Those guys are perfect. Like they never, they're so close together, but yet they never touch. They are the pinnacle of heroes for me. 
And so now as we go back to, as I'm an adult and I go back to Pensacola with my family and we've gone to some of their shows, and afterward you listen to them talk or you listen to the, um, the commentators talk about them while they're getting in position for the next maneuver or whatever, one thing that has really stuck with me is the entry requirements that it takes to become a Blue Angel pilot. For them to represent the Navy, for them to say, I have on my, sh- on my chest these wings And I get to wear this blue and gold suit. And I get to ride in that blue and gold plane. And what happens for them to get to that point is they go through rigorous training. These guys are the best of the best in the Navy and in the Marine Corps. And they're nominated by their superior officers. And they have 1,200 hours in a fighter jet. And they have flown X amount of missions and all of these things. But then there's this one last little criteria And this one last little criteria is a make it or break it thing because there's plenty of people that are excellent pilots. There's plenty of people that can fly really well and nobody would ever notice their errors. But see, in order for the Blue Angels to be perfect, they can't have any loose cannon. They can't have any weak persons on their team. And so what they do is they attach a 40-pound spring to the little control stick that flies that airplane. So instead of it being like one or two pounds to move this thing around, it's now 45 or 50 pounds for them to move the stick around and fly this plane because you don't ever want to be driving around just like we do in your car and all of a sudden have a muscle twitch because what that muscle twitch at 700 miles an hour is going to do is throw you into another plane, right? So for the Blue Angels to be perfect, the last thing that they have to do is they go into the gym with the doctor for the Blue Angels And the doctor for the Blue Angels hands them a 45-pound weight. And he says, hold this in a curl for 45 minutes. And you can't waver and you can't get tired. And so for many, many people that would like to be in the Blue Angels, one 45-pound weight is all that stands between them and the dream job. For them to be a hero, for them to become a Blue Angel. But for many of them, the 45-pound weight is what crushes them. They might make it for a minute, they might make it for five, or 10, or 37, but eventually that weight proves too much for them to bear. That alone would destroy me. It would disqualify me from being a Blue Angel pilot, even if I could make it through all the external righteousness that's required. Even if I could, say, fly a fighter jet, even if I could deal with motion sickness enough that I could do the disorientation training that they have to do, which I couldn't, I would be just throwing up all over the place during that thing. I could not make it through that point, but at the very end, the weight, it would disqualify me from being a Blue Angel pilot. And you and I today may be saying, We want to be perfect before God. We want our righteousness to be absolutely perfect because that's what God requires of us, right? And we would say, I can do all the right things. I attend church. I love my wife. I love my kids. I am faithful in my job. I don't cheat on my taxes. Whatever our external righteousness, we might say, I can do this. But then we say, the weight of God's law, can I really hold that up in perfection for the 70, the 80 years of my life? And we say, no, we can't. We need someone for us who is a hero that can handle the weight of our sin. And so what we see in scriptures, we see Christ. Christ who could handle the weight of sin. And he says, I 
will take on my people's sinfulness so that they could have my righteousness. I will give them my record instead of their faulty record. Maybe this morning you're living in condemnation. Maybe you're feeling silent over your sin and what it's doing is it's crushing you or destroying you. You're trying to hide all the ugliness of it. So what I would say to you this morning is look to Christ Jesus. In repentance and faith say, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. And so we look to Jesus Christ. And perhaps this morning what you need to do is you just need to rejoice in the God who has for you taken the curse that you couldn't handle so that you could have his righteousness, so that you could have happiness and joy in Jesus Christ. And so for you, that, there, there's a path of joy. There's a path of rejoicing that comes as you confess your own sin to the Lord and say, God, be gracious to me. So before we close this morning, I just want to give you 30 seconds and say, let's take 30 seconds and acknowledge our sin, but also to rejoice in the fact that there is a Redeemer who has redeemed us from the curse of sin, and his name is Christ. And then we'll get to celebrate the table where Christ says, your sins are forgiven. So let's, uh, let's take 30 seconds. Graciously, Father, I confess before you my love to be right. I confess before you my desire to always have everyone see me as righteous and wise and the bearer of perfect truth. Lord, forgive me for being so unwilling and so slow to bear my, my sins before you, my unrighteousness before you, to confess my need of you. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, though, that there was one who was truly perfect, who came to bear those sins, to take them upon himself, to die and pay for those sins, the wrath they deserved, and to give us his righteousness that Ben was just talking about. We thank you for how the body of Christ, which was broken to take the wrath that we deserved, how that's represented in the bread this morning, and how your blood was shed to make us righteous and to cleanse us before you and to make us pure so that we are forgiven, so that our iniquities are not held against us, and to give us a new heart, how that's represented in the blood, in the wine, and the juice this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we lay aside the simple bread and the simple juice, the simple cup, and we ask that you would give us great grace as we experience once again your incredible forgiveness, your blessing, the superlative blessing that is ours in Christ Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.